Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Robert Spiegel has more than 20 years' experience in the counseling and representation of producers, writers, directors, distribution companies, and foreign sales agents concerning development, production, marketing, distribution, and exploitation of fiction and nonfiction film, television, publishing, and new media projects. His clients' projects have appeared theatrically and on network syndicated, public and cable television, and have earned award, Academy Award and Emmy nominations and awards and prizes at major film festivals. And Carol, I understand Bob is a donor to your grants. Yes, Claire, he's been a very kind to us from the heart, loves working with Robert Siegel. He's marvelous, and he takes good care of our grant winners and the people that are physically sponsored by us. So good morning, Robert. Thank you for joining us. Hi, glad to be here, definitely. Well, we're going to cover a lot of things today, and our subject is really the business of film, because Hollywood is rewriting the rules for the streaming era, it's a title, this is the title of a recent Wall Street Journal story by Watson, who quotes Jim Moore of Vine Alternative Investment, who says that the investment world won't miss the days where catering to actors and filmmakers sometimes came above investors' interests. So he's inferring that those days are gone, that the streaming services seem to be running the movie business. So I'm just wondering, how do you see this playing out with the streamers taking so much control? Well, I think we have to kind of take a step back because, you know, look at the streamers. Generally, we're talking about Amazon, Netflix, Hulu. I mean, yes, there's Apple. Like at Sundance, Apple for $25 million picked up Coda, the children of deaf, you know, but, uh, you know, deaf people, um, which which actually is Apple and, and Neon, which I think Neon's going to do the theatrical. But, you know, but again, I, what there are two ways of looking at streamers. One is the streamers acquiring product, acquiring projects that have been financed privately, like through equity investors, you know, that type of thing. You know, and that's one scenario. And, you know, basically, yes, they do it like at Sundance and others, but the streamers are doing less and less of that, basically. They're doing more of the second scenario, which is they're actually, you know, developing it, financing it, producing it, and releasing it, you know, on their on their platform um, themselves. And under that scenario... Where people are like saying, "Oh, I have you know, I have a film. I want to take it. You know, I want Netflix. I'm taking Netflix, and Netflix will finance it, and you know, and so forth." Your investors are like taken out of the equation, basically. So uh, you know, so at this point, you know, uh, 
that quote is not really going to be really applicable to the idea of uh, investors not having to worry about oh uh you know the you know now the the, the talent the actors you know the actors the actresses the cast the riot they all can't basically ask you know for these tremendous back end participations um but you know so i mean the equity the investors are coming are in the equation for the acquisitions now the way that you know is being handled you know you know and it still is to some extent when there are acquisitions it is the stream of philosophy is like they're like the 800 pound gorilla they're basically they want to take over the world and they want to take over the world you know not just in, in general but also regarding the project you know they'll acquire a film and like we want worldwide rights because you know we have the ability Netflix does the other streamers do to to maybe a slightly lesser extent like Amazon may not be the entire world it may be parts of it um but they want to acquire the world and where you know where they basically don't have the territory you know for for their serve their platforms they basically can make deals with you know platforms that are overseas mm-hmm. um yeah so so basically they want to acquire the world and when that happens not only that they you know when they want to acquire the world they want to basically you know make a deal to put it on their their platforms and that's about it so the opportunity to generate revenue outside of those streamers often will be less. I mean, we don't really have as much DVD, you know, basically. Theatrical now is, is, is always, is, you know, was a little bit wobbly before the pandemic. Now it's gotten a little even more, it's really wobbly. And will it come, how will it come back? That's a whole separate, you know, separate issue. So what would happen with these acquisitions, it's like, I mean, I'll, I'll keep the math simple. It's like, oh, it's like, Okay, your our film is like a million dollars. So the idea is we'll acquire for a million dollars, but you know, but we're going to basically buy out all your rights. You know, the streamer, the platform says, and we'll pay you your budget, say a million dollars, and we'll pay you like a premium, like twenty-five percent. So we'll pay you one million two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that buys it out, and you don't see any more money. And that's the end wow. of the story. You know, and again, I think it's very low. It never reverts back at any time in the future. They, it's gone forever. Well, I mean, most of the Netflix deals basically. Now, again, if, they pay, if they're paying you a good amount of money, a significant mm-hmm. amount of money, like the budget plus some kind of overage premium type of thing, mm-hmm. it most likely will be in perpetuity. Okay. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, I mean, if they're going to pay you a lot a lot less, like a pure licensing fee, which they're not going to do as much anymore, then maybe you're going to have it for a few years. It won't be in perpetuity. But the amount of money you're going to be able to get is going to be a lot less. And, again, after two, three years, you know, a lot of the, kind of the bloom is off the proverbial rose in terms of putting right. it in the marketplace. You know, basically, I mean, most of the time, you know, the idea is like score the big deal and on an acquisition, it's going to be your budget plus some kind of premium. And again, are there going to be bonuses? The question is the bonuses are based on what? It's not like there's no box office. And again, it's very difficult to figure out how well 
projects, you know, projects do on streamers because they jealously guard their data. Mm-hmm. So basically, that becomes a little bit, becomes very you know, problematical to say the least. Now that that now that's just basically if it's an acquisition. But what mm-hmm. happens if it's if it's basically they're financing the film, and they're like they're probably going to be the only investors. Uh, they're self-financing themselves and producing it, and then they're releasing it. At that point, you know basically, uh, there you know well, what type of deal can you possibly make that isn't going to be that has back end when they want to really buy out your back end, whether you're the producer or you're the talent, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the way that they're trying to handle this, and, and again, this is also like with HBO Max and others, you know, um, is is basically they're going to, you know, you know, go go to the idea of they're going to be paying more on the front end. Like on Wonder Woman, you had... Gal Gadot and you had Patty Jenkins getting like ten million dollars or or more, you know, in addition to what they got paid as their fixed compensation, their fees, to make up for the fact that there is no back end really on HBO Max. Right. So basically, again, the whole idea of back end compensation was to keep the budgets lower, because if the film did well then obviously more money would come. And this goes back to like Jimmy Stewart in Winchester 73, you know, in the 40s, 30s and 40s. But, mm-hmm. you know, but the problem is that um, if you don't have a back end, where do, where do you pay people? You have to pay them on the front end, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so that basically raises the budgets. Now, for like these streamers, especially Netflix, it seems to have an inexhaustible amount of money that's less of a problem but and obviously, if you're not a streamer, how do you compete with the streamers that can basically pay these type of overages to make up for the lack of a back end? Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the the you know the, you know the the main problem, and people are still working it out. And you know, again, I'm I'm not going to really go into too much detail. It becomes even more of an issue on the on the front when you, they start doing not just films, but they do televisions. How do you compensate people for television? The way it used to be is like, you know, it would, you know, it would air on networks. And they'd have like two runs for a fee, and then they would go into syndication, and then that's where you would see most of your money. Now you don't have really syndication, and the runs can be endless and in perpetuity. So mm-hmm. how do you figure out compensation other than on the front end, your, uh, your fixed fee? Your fixed mm-hmm. compensation, and you know, sometimes you know, there, is there a way of getting some type of contingent compensation? Believe it or not, like Hulu and a few others, you know, they they do claim that there's something called the modified adjusted gross receipts, where they get a certain percentage of monies, and and after you deduct expenses, you'll get that money over and above. But you know, in certain cases, you know, that may, you know, they may not be offering that. So how do you get compensation outside of your fee? Sometimes you do it based on, oh, like if for every season that you go in, you get like performance bonuses. For every season you get, you get a bonus. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you'll notice in streaming, the longevity of a series on, you know, on these streamers generally 
caps out after three or four seasons. They're not like networks where we used to like run for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. You don't see that. It, somehow the, the streamers always want to do something that's really new and shiny, and they begin to get a little disenchanted or their algorithms get really low after the, like the second, third, fourth season, and they decide to cancel the series. Right. So it, they don't have as long a shelf life as they used to, is what we're looking at. Yes. For the streamers, yes. For the streamers, right. Because, no, they're... Um, I I belong to Netflix, so I, I get my uh, invitations almost daily, and they're saying this is coming. It's just like when you would go to the movie, and every time you get in the movie, they give you the coming attractions. Well, Netflix does that almost on a daily basis, and, and they release a lot of things on Friday night. So you're looking forward to not going to the movie, but, but getting to the TV on time on Friday to see your film. So that's how things have changed. And that, that really brings me to the next question, which is um, the domestic box office revenues were just $2.28 billion in America. This used to be one of our greatest incomes. It was down from $11.4 billion in, 19, in 2019, according to Comscore. So the question is, are we ever going to see $11 billion in the box office again? Do you think it'll ever get back up like it was? Well, I think a lot of people have to realize, even before the pandemic, fewer people were going to the theater. More people were basically watching things on demand, with little you know, like DVDs, which are more for documentaries than are for narratives sometimes, than actually going into the theater. You know, if you uh, if they ever did a survey, how many times a year somebody goes to a theater? Compare, you know, you know, recently as opposed to in the past, the number is always a lot less. You know, basically, so the number was getting kind of flatter going into the pandemic, and then here, basically, it just kind of got like kind of hollowed out. You know, ba- you know, basically, and you know, like they like there was some numbers like. Oh, in 2020, at the end of 2020, like in this, like December, there were like 31 films and like 11,000 theaters, basically, and that was like the best. Like <laughs> that was like 2020 at the end of the day. Now with the vaccine, you know, the vaccines and all that, is it going to get better? I mean, now you hear like AMC is like starting up. There are like 13 of them they're going to go into, but again, the capacities are going to be like you know. 25% or so, you know, basically. And, you know, where, you know, you still can maybe not, you know, you can maybe not lose too much money or maybe break even or something, unlike Fever, where basically there's like one show a day, unless it's matinees. And basically, if you don't have, like for Broadway, if you don't have 100% capacity or close to it, or significantly mm-hmm. like 70, 80%, don't even bother going on because by the time you have to pay, you know, the costs and the, and the, and the cast and the crew and all that, you're losing money significantly. So that's why, you know, they're saying, oh, maybe, you know, if it'll be the end of, you know, like December or November, the fall, whatever, it's more likely it's going to be spring 2022 pretty much. For the fever, I mean, for film, I think, you know, basically it's going to be looking at the same thing, maybe like spring, as well, I mean, 
yeah. of next year in a significant manner, basically. I mean, I mean, I think we're still going to have, you know, films there. And you have to remember, frequently, like for independent for studios, theatrical distribution was not really a rev. It was was less less a revenue generating center. I mean, it, it, you know, a profit generating center. It was more revenue generating, but it was really more priming the pump for what we used to call, an, you know, call ancillary rights, like DV, you know, what used to be DVD and basically, you know, cable, and now basically it was like acquisition for streaming and so forth. Now basically. You know, it's the tail wagging the dog. I mean, you know, the, the you know the theater basically um, theatrical exhibition was really to prime the pump, basically to get it out. Because how do you market a film, you know, like in twenty 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 you know into twenty twenty one when you really don't have, you know, like ads in newspapers where people are going to theaters. Uh huh. You know, I mean, basically, how do you know things that are on Netflix unless you have a subscription and then you kind of like get up you know, get updates and thumbnail sketches and stuff like that. So marketing has become a lot more difficult because you don't have, you know, the advertising that's associated with theater. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. So, yes, that makes sense that it would be in the spring of 2020, both for, for Broadway plays and for the theater to really get going again. Um. Okay, well, so they are forecasting eighty billion in streamers for of twenty twenty five. That that's where that number will be. So no wonder all of these studios are starting their streaming service. That seems to be where the real income is. And since it's an electronic delivery, they don't out of theaters, employees, and all the other things. So that really looks like the future to filmmaking. I, it's, I think it's going to really be a hybrid, you know, basically. I mean, pr- I mean, it's still, I think more people are going to see things, you know, online than they're going to see mm-hmm. it in the fever. It's just, the, it's just the way it is. I think, you know, the fever primes the pump for sales, like for deals, you know, for seeing things online and re- generating revenue. But again, it's going to be less and less because you make deal again, you know, like Amazon, yes, you can maybe get, you know, a theatrical window. Netflix, it's really, really hard. They really don't want to give that window. You know, it's like, I mean, I, you know, I, I would love to go to a theater and see something like, if I, you know, if I could have, like Mank, you know, basically about Herman oh, Mankiewicz and Citizen so Kane. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but basically, you know, and again, you know, unless you have something like Martin Scorsese and The Irishman and all that, you know, or basically, you know, Roma, where basically the directors are really kind of putting Netflix's feet to the fire to the extent you can, you know, they usually are not going to have that theatrical window. It's it's going to be very, very narrow, and there really is no video on demand. It's either you get the Netflix subscription or you don't get it. You know, Amazon, they, you know, they, 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 you know, again. Basically, when Ted Hope was running it, basically, Amazon, basically, there was more of an opportunity for theatrical Manchester by the Sea and stuff like that. Now he's not there, and they want to be competitive, and maybe less so. So, um, you know, so basically, you know, the streamers and theatrical releases, they don't really mix, they haven't really found a way of 
mixing, even though they really should. But it's become harder and harder to do that type of hybrid. Right. Well, in this same article, it says that Warner Brothers, in their 100-year history, this is the first time that Warner does not have a single executive whose sole job is to oversee the production and distribution of movies meant for the big screen. All 17 of their films will screen in America's movie theaters and on its HBO Max service at the same time. How about that? Then it says, you know, are there many theaters left open? I don't even know in my area if there's a theater open around here. Well, again, I think they're fewer and fewer. I mean, I was just reading off some figures that maybe there were like 11,000 theaters by the end that were open. But again, they were mostly independent theaters. They really weren't really studio-driven. And again, the whole thing, the whole HBO Max, I mean, it's very much taking the situation of the pandemic and actually using it kind of as an excuse to really bump up the subscription service of HBO Max. All the films that that Warner Brothers would have theatrically released are on HBO Max. You want to see a Warner Brothers movie, you got to go to HBO Max. you got to go get a HBO Max subscription. You know, mm-hmm. which is all well and good like during the pandemic. But also you have to realize that, you know, HBO, I mean, Warner, Warner basically kind of put themselves behind the proverbial eight ball because talent now is going to be looking, you know, looking twice before going to Warner Brothers when there are others, you know, not not every, you know, they have output deals of the studios, but they're not the same as basically, you know, all the Warner Brothers movies going to HBO Max for, you know, for this for 2020 and 20, maybe part of, part of 2020, you know, 21, basically. And if there's an opportunity, and again, if you go to HBO Max, how does the talent, the directors and, you know, and the cast, the name cast, basically get compensated in a, in a sole st- streaming service as opposed to going to one that isn't a studio that's not as rigidly tied to a streaming service. Again, once the theater is open, the HBO Max, HBO Max subscription service is going to have to be rethought, basically. So the idea of not having anyone who – I mean – I think every you know people are going to handle production. Production is the same way, regardless of whether it's online. It's the distribution that's the difference, basically. And again, I don't think they can just put out all the people who handle theatrical distribution out the pasture because theaters are not going to really become you know totally extinct. You know? Right. So yeah. So I you know basically. I think we're. It's, this is a moment where, yes, we we're basically, you know, they're trying to make hay with the HBO Max subscription service, but when theaters begin to open up, can they really afford that same business plan? Exactly. Well, you know, Christopher Nolan certainly agrees with you because he was not happy with this hybrid distribution strategy of Tenet. And he said he would not return to Warner's for his next film. So he, then he would have to go find a studio that is producing that is not that does not have its own streaming service and and doesn't tie you into that restriction. 
Yeah. I mean, most of them have some kind of output deal. I mean, I think like maybe Sony may not. I mean, not, not positive. I mean, the very few have basically are like totally agnostic when it comes to streaming, you know, where they, where they can go to Hulu, they can go to Amazon, they can go to Netflix. More and more of them are like, you know, they have output deals where they get at least get a certain amount of money going through those output deals to say a Netflix or or to an or to an Amazon, you know, basically. But uh um not you know, again, not every studio is gonna really wanna just, you know, basically say Netflix or bust. <laughs> Definitely not. Okay. Well, do you, you think I think we may have only fifty percent of uh, our theaters left by the time that they reopen. What do you think? Is that a high estimate? Mm, no, I, 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 it could be a little, a little bit high, you know, a little bit higher. I mean, you know, again, people, you know, again, you have this pandemic fatigue, you know. I mean, now you have really very little choice. But once there's this opportunity, where are people going to go? You know, go out on dates. <laughs> I mean, basically, unless they're going to just stay home and watch TV. And you know, and you know, you know, and by TV I mean streaming as well. So I think, you know, could there be fewer favors? You know, yes, there could be fewer favors. Yeah, I mean, that yeah that. Yeah, that, that may be the case. They may not come back as easily. There may be fewer, but you know, are they going to be extinct? No, and I think they're going to, you know, slowly come back. And I think, you know, basically, you know, to have that model where you have the possibility of a film doing well, you know, theatrically, and then basically, you know, fe- you know, feeding into other revenues is not one that's going to go go away. Otherwise, studios are really going to just be producing for streamers, and mm-hmm. that's it. So and we really need the theaters in, the, in there as a window of release, as a marketing tool. Significantly, that is the that has become more and more the reason for theatrical releases. As I said, to prime mm-hmm. the pump for the other revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. I don't think they're like entirely going to go away. I don't think that you know it's not going to you know go the way of the Nickelodeon, you know. Um, okay. But as I think it's going to you know, but I think some of them may not be coming back. Well, I've been so worried because I love the Limley theaters. They have been one of the greatest uh, things for independent filmmakers. They have really launched a lot of filmmakers' careers through their theaters. So, I, you know, they, they're just a small group, but I understand that they're surviving, and they were very smart. I heard that he sold the land uh, of, of, under his theater and then option, and then got a, a lease for his theater, and he's leasing the property, but at least he was able to pull some cash out to help him survive. He's the greatest thing we have going, I think, for he and other art houses. Well, again, I think what you're doing, and I think you know what we need to do is divide the theatrical viewing experience into like you know, two buckets. One of them is going to see studio movies and going to see independent films. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, with you know, when you had studios, you had advertising, you had commercials. 
you know, on TV, radio, et cetera. You know, basically, independence, he had some, but he had much less. You had to rely more on newspaper, more on ads, more on publicity. You know, we were, were buying things like buying advertising and commercials. So, I, I, you know, you have to be, and it's like the overused word, nimble, you know, in order to, you know, market your film. And I think independents kind of a little, have a little bit of a, you know, a leg up when you basically take out the, you know, the fact that you can't, you know, you can't basically sell advertising or, com- or buy advertising and commercials for that. So, uh, so I think even during the pandemic, you know, I think people, you know, I think for some reason, I think people also see independent films that may be more adventuresome about going back to the movies and say people see studio movies. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. a feeling. There's no facts to basically, you know, back that assertion. I just think that it'll just be, I think there's more to the experience of going to see an independent film than it is of going to see a studio film. I think people are more likely to say, you know, a studio film, I'll just wait a few weeks and see it. Like It used to be like a, you know, I would do the same thing. I'd see it like video on demand. Yes, right, right, right. Oh, well, it's a whole new world out here. So, oh, yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, well, uh, I'd love to get into understanding the whole thing about the CARE Act. In other words, um, I know that it's in place and I understand some of the situations, but I would like to take it from an independent filmmaker's perspective. So, Because I'm really worried about our precious independent filmmakers. Uh, you know, we actually uh, created a documentarian emergency fund for those people who were making films and earning a living on docks, and they can't right now. And so many of them are really in dire need of food, rent, car, utilities, car insurance. You know, I'm, I'm seeing applications come in, and it's deplorable how our great, talented documentarians are without jobs. They're really suffering. I know the other independent filmmakers are, too. So the question mm-hmm. is, um, you know, how are they going to survive? So I, they've got to get it through somehow, get through this period to, uh, of difficulty in, in filming because of the extra costs of COVID. And I guess the point is that they can make it for another eight, 10, 12 months, they may survive and still be able to work in the industry. And that's really what you're saying well, it might come well, back by well, then. Yeah, well, that's all true, but I think it has very little to do with the CASE Act. And let me say, let's take a step back and say, what's the CASE Act? Okay. It's kind of ironic that the, the CASE Act, which stands for the Copyright Alternative and Small Claims Enforcement Act, basically uh-huh. came through the COVID relief bill, because it really doesn't have much to do with COVID relief. The idea of the CASE Act was to have these small claim type courts for copyright, where you'd have these tribunals where somebody could bring a claim if it fit within certain parameters, such as, you know, it's either like, you're bringing a uh, you're bringing a claim regarding copyright infringement, or you're basically trying to defend a claim of copyright infringement. And one of the limitations is that the claims in total cannot be more than thirty thousand dollars. Okay. Basically, 
Um, and, and one of the prerequisites is to have registered for copyright, you know, your work so you can get that full 30,000. If you don't, it, it gets cut in half to 15,000. If you, if you do it after you bring a lawsuit or a claim, I'll say, because mm-hmm. well, the idea, it's like small claims court where, you know, you go in and you have this tribunal and somebody basically makes a claim that there was copyright infringement, you know, and somebody's going to defend it and that type of thing. And the idea is to kind of streamline the process. But you have to realize that, you know, both sides have to agree. So if someone brings a claim under the Case Act for, you know, basically, you know, so let's say copyright infringement and, you know, the other side who the claim is brought against it can opt out of the board proceeding. You just do it in writing within, you know, basically within 60 days after you serve notice, you know, after you basically, after you, you know, you've received notice. And then basically, you know, someone opts out and you can't use the case act in, in this tribunal and you have to use the regular federal, you know, litigation system. So basically, and also if you're going to opt out, do it in a timely manner because if you don't opt out in time, basically in writing, you're going to be legally bound by a board's determination. Basically. And, you know, so... So, wait, so that, uh, yeah, this yeah. is what I need to understand. But if you uh, you say you must use what? Well, if you don't use the, if you don't notify them in sixty days, then uh, and then you get you're out of the case, and you have to use another system, the standard well, system. Well, yeah, if, if 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 a party opts out, then mm-hmm. those parties cannot use the basically the the small claims. Copyright small claims court, for lack of a better term, they have to use mm-hmm. the regular federal, you know, court system. Litigation. Oh, regular. So you would have to go to the court in your local area and file a claim there, like you would ordinarily. Yeah. Yeah. And again, okay. the pro, you know, the whole idea was, you know, litigation is very expensive. It can be like ten thousand a month, and attorney fees and so forth. The idea is to streamline this. But by streamlining it, you're basically lowering the amount that you can get. So you have to kind of squash your, the amount the money that you can receive to like $30,000 or less mm-hmm. for that to work, basically. And again, some people may not want to and others, others may. Now, one argument about, you know, the CASE Act is that it's going to promote, you know, these what they call trolls. These mm-hmm. people who kind of make a living by basically sending, you know, letters and threatening lawsuits saying that, you know, basically you've you violated a copyright and so forth. And, you know, I'll give you like an example. Somebody will say, oh, you didn't, you didn't license this work, you know, basically. And you'll say, well, it's fair use. And they'll say, well, I don't think it's fair use. So I'm going to bring it, you know, I'm going to bring, I'm going to threaten to bring a lawsuit. And depending on the, the Positions and the, and the resources of the parties, you know, they may, you know, a filmmaker may, a media maker may say, well, let me, let's see if we can settle it out. And that's what these quote the trolls, you know, and I'm using that in a generic term, hope that you'll do so that basically they'll go away and they'll get some money. 
Okay. So the yeah the idea is like oh it's like thirty thousand or less the trolls are gonna instead of sending letters they're gonna basically be sending these claims, you know they're gonna be trying to make use of the of these small claims courts in order to get the money, and they're saying well media maker if you want to opt out then you're gonna have to spend a lot more money going to court. So okay so these trolls are going to say to the filmmakers that you have that your fair use is not allowed on this product. And there are four tenets to fair use. And most filmmakers know those and are working under them. Uh, and, they, and their attorney should have also looked at the, their information and decided that it does fit the fair use. So they've had some feedback. And then a troll comes along and hits them. Uh, so... What would happen? Would you just say pay the money, and because by the time that you take it out of here, do you think those trolls? What percentage of those would really file a claim in a uh, normal court? Well, in a normal court, a lot of Muslim wouldn't because they didn't want to spend the money themselves. Uh-huh. Now that you have the case act with these small claims courts, they've basically made it a little bit easier for them to not have to go to court or threaten to go to court. They can uh, use these small claims courts in order to basically, you know, extract money. Yes. Now, again, let's take a step back about fair use. The idea of fair use, the fair use is a defense to copyright infringement because you're using it for a certain means, by commentary, you're only using a certain amount. There's some transformational element to it. There's the four factors, and usually transformational is like in the mix in there. And and a lot of times, you know, basically, yeah, it's a like it's a it's, it is it is a threat, and you got to stand it down. And again, as you know, it cut both ways. I mean, the person making making the claim had to be ready to go to court. You know, basically go to court and spend money. You know now with the you know basically with the with the case act you know you know they can they don't they can basically go to um you know they don't necessarily have to go to court they can do that, but again, you have to have both sides agree to go to these copyright small claims courts to make it work and if somebody doesn't really want to do that, you know like the media maker then they're saying take me to court you know, i I believe you know my attorney believes we have a strong fair use claim. You know, if you believe it's you know, you can't take a shortcut and go to copyright small claims court. You you want to go after after us? You're gonna to have to do it the no, you know the normal way. Take us to court, and then basically they have to make a everybody has to make a you know a judgment, an evaluation, mm-hmm. like they normally would. So this could uh, I had a uh, a friend uh, who had made a brilliant film. Robert, and it had a lot of uh, sound clips, lots of them. And uh, one of the str- it was perfect for streamers, but one of those big streamers turned it down, saying it's too much, uh, too many clips in there. We don't want to hassle. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, just a few months before this case act was decided. But obviously, they knew about it. So I'm wondering if. It's going to be harder for people with a lot of uh, clips or uh, fair use in their films to sell it to the larger streamers. It, well, basically, I mean, I've 
like done deals with Netflix. I mean, in order for it to work, I mean, again, if the if basically the media maker can get a lawyer's you know a legal opinion, fair use legal opinion, and they can get errors and omission insurance for claims like you know copyright infringement, defamation, things like that, that may make the streamer comfortable enough to do it. You know, I mean, that's so that's that's usually how how it's handled. If for some reason, you know, so the the streamers, you know, legal counsel looks at it and says they're just too, you know, they're just too many clips. Again, I don't think it's not a question of the number of clips. It's really the the uses of those clips, the amount of the taking. You know, if it's like twenty seconds, ten seconds, and all that. You know. Again, I don't know if this particular media maker had a, you know, basically a, had an attorney issue a fair use legal opinion, which could be submitted to the streamer as well as to the an underwriter to get errors and omission insurance, and if if, if they did or didn't. And no, they and, did. And they had all that. They had everything. Well, and, and then basically, it's uh, unfortunately, it's a, you know, it's like taking kind of the you know, kind of, you know, just, you know, the streamers just want to take, you know, kind of play it safe, unfortunately. Play it safe. Well, because if, let's say, the trolls hit a film that, that Netflix, for example, owned, uh, would Netflix, I mean, they'd be in a position where they could get hit with a lot of these claims. And uh, let's say they had a film with 100 clips in it there's a chance that they might get hit with three or four of them. And uh, so that maybe they just don't want to have all those potential legal problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I worked on a film called Casting By, which was about casting director Marion Doherty in order to basically do the film. We had to have clips from yes. the films that she cast. And there were many of them. And, but they were all justified because how else do you basically show the career? But again, these were very short clips and so you know, and so forth, and they were, you know, strategically, you know, strategically placed. Again, a lot of people have to really, you have to remember, yeah, it's a defense, and you have to be very judicious how you use, like, the fair use defense. A lot of times, you know, I mean, I see people come in and, like, they have, like, one or two minutes of, like, you know, like music. Music is really difficult because the music industry takes a very dim view of fair use. It's like... The problem is, you know, if, if if you take like a minute out of a film, which is still a lot, or 30 seconds, 30 seconds out of a two-hour movie is very little. You take out 30 seconds out of a three-minute song, you've taken out one sixth of the of the, you know, you've used one sixth of of the of the of the of the, of the creation. That's a yes. more significant percentage. Yes. Right. So you have to be, you have to be even more careful on in, whenever you use, in, if you use music, you know, pre-existing music compositions and master recordings for that. But uh, now I know, you know, we we had discussed the whole idea of archival footage. Again, archival footage is just another form of pre-existing f- material that you're putting in your film where you license it, and you hopefully you license it and you make a deal for that, because that's the, you know, you take your pre-existing issues and you try to really license it, because that's the way you do it. If, you know, if it's, like, exorbitant, or for some reason the licensor isn't going to agree to license the pre-existing material, and, it's, and you, it does fit the criteria 
of fair use. That's a different story. If it doesn't, then you know you're in a position, fortunate position that you may have to remove that pre-existing material from the film. Exactly. Right. So uh, filmmakers should be very aware of what's going on with this new law because when they had a big uh, uh, event online and they were kind enough to have lawyers and other people commenting, and one of the commenters said filmmakers should uh, put $60,000 away and have it sitting there so that if they do get hit with suits, they are financially covered. But, I mean, you seldom see a filmmaker with 60000 set aside yeah, for Yeah, that's, you know, yeah, I mean, basically, that's, you know, in an ideal world, yeah, that's the case. But, you know, most most media makers barely have enough money to pay for errors and omission insurance, which, you know, <laughs> can run like maybe, you know, six $8,000 or so, dependingly, let alone having $60,000. So it's nice if, you know, if you're a large company with a deep pocket, but I don't think it's a very practical suggestion at the end of the day for most media makers. Exactly. Well, what advice do you have for filmmakers using archival footage to prevent any claims or to minimize the claims? Well, I think the you know, again with archival footage, it's even it's even trickier because you have to realize a lot of archival houses they may own the physical material but they don't necessarily own the copyright to that pre-existing material, and they give you what's called a quick claim, like on a house, where they're saying, you're buying the house, but we, don't, we can't make any warranties or representations about, them, about the chain of title on the house. And that becomes very problematical. A lot of times, you know, I tell, I tell clients, you know, quick claim, you know, that's... That's that's very problematical because it tells you, yeah, they own the physical material, basically, but they don't necessarily own the copyright to that physical material, to the, to, to you know to the, you know the intellectual property that's on the physical material. So it becomes really problematical using it. That's why you have to look at the you know the, the licensing agreement. That's that for these uh, for the archival footages and and what are they representing? And again, like services like Pond Five, that have a lot of pre-existing material as well, and they have certain, you know, they have a whole set of regulations. You got to read it or read it with with your with counsel. So a lot of people think, oh, it's a great treasure trove having these archival, you know, archival houses. Yeah, I mean, they're great having that. But the question is, what are you actually licensing or making a deal on? And and that, so that you know, you have to kind of read those licenses yourself and with counsel, in order to assess what you're actually getting. Exactly. I didn't know it was that complicated, but that is so clear. They just they are, they're in control of the physical material, but they're not taking any responsibility as to the ownership of the copyright. So uh, that's really important for filmmakers to know. Thank you so much for that. So. Robert, tell me how can people reach you? Well, um, well, on, online, my basically, um, basically, my email is rls Robert Lewis Siegel e n t l a w at aol dot com, and 
Also, I have, I have a website, which is R-L-S-E-N-T-L-A-W, just .com, uh, without the AOL. Yes, I'm a dinosaur. Uh, I've had it for like <laughs> over 20 years. I, I'm going to keep it, and that's how people can find me, um, you know, for that. And, you know, the phone number is 212-605-0301, and it's on the website as well. So that's that's kind of how you can reach me. Oh, wonderful, Robert. Well, thank you so much. What a wealth of information you've shared with us today. It's fabulous. Thank you so much for your time, Robert. Okay, appreciate it. Very good. Okay, take good care. Thank take you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Claire, right. thank you so Be much. Be well, everyone. You're okay. welcome, and thank Bye. you, Robert. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.